The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 4 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, we'll be focusing on tech and innovation within the retail sector. We'll be talking to retailers who are utilising new and transformative technologies to support their business, as well as deep dive into the stories of startups who are taking the lead on retail innovation. Joining me for some retail therapy today in the American Express Lounge is Nicole Sheffield, Managing Director at West Farmers One Digital and the first ever female president of the Australian Retailers Association. Nicole is responsible for leading the development of West Farmers' group-wide data and digital ecosystem. She has a rich and storied career, previously serving as the Executive General Manager of Community and Consumer at Australia Post and Chief Digital Officer at News Corp Australia, just to name a few. Media, marketing and digital industries run in Nicole's DNA and I'm thrilled to have her as a guest. Nicole, a warm welcome. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. I love this fantastic podcast. It's good and lovely to have you back again. Um, obviously, we're very familiar with each other, given you're the ARA president. But for the listeners, please give us a brief overview of your career so far and what has led you to where you are today. Well, I mean, I've had, I think you describe my career really well. I mean, the reality is I've had a few different changes. I've sort of had done large stints in various industries. And I think, you know, as soon as I feel like I really enjoy that, I think, what's the next big challenge? And then when I'm getting at those challenges of like, why did you take this on? So I started off my career actually as a failed lawyer. So I was uh, finished law. I literally chose law because LA Law was on the TV show. And for the young listeners, that was a very popular program back in the 80s. And I, I had a crush on Harry Hamlin. So that was like a good reason to do law. <laughs> so luckily, I when I finished the, the law degree, I, I started doing some internships. And I fortunately had an incredible general counsel that called me in and said, Nicole, you are going to make an absolutely rubbish lawyer. So, but you would be amazing in the commercial world. If I was you, I would try and get into some sort of commercial field. So it was a big wake up call for me because I'd never really thought about planning or thinking about my career or what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And I landed my first role as a graduate in a graduate leadership program at Telstra and it opened my eyes. I did six months in customer service, six months in sales and six months in marketing. And at the end of that, I ended up getting a job in the multimedia department and we launched this little internet service called Big Pond and it was insane. It was just the most amazing experience about actually how do you create something new in an iconic a company like, you know, Telstra, but actually how do you really have some strong product disciplines about how you get customers to try something new? And, you know, I learned lots about how you put customer at the centre of everything you do. And I took all of that experience and, as you rightly said, had a number of roles in media, had a decade in media. My last role at media was actually, uh, as as you mentioned, Chief Digital Officer of News Corp. Um, And there I had the great privilege of leading great brands, whether it's news.com.au, taste.com.au, Vogue, and just so many wonderful uh, 
digital and 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 publishing properties and I thought wow with all this experience what's the area that I haven't understood and where do I go next and I really was attracted to retail because of the fast pace energy of retail because of the fact that they retail always puts customer at the center but also because I could see digital was going to disrupt retail as it had publishing and my understanding of digital and how to really bring the customer to the center of whatever you do will be vital and so I actually took up an unusual role one with Australia Post as the Executive General Manager of Community and Consumer. And that was across the 4,500 post offices, the digital and data assets, the contact centres, all customer-facing, consumer-facing programs. I did that for just under four years and I loved it. It was fantastic. But, you know, we had a lot of challenges at, in, uh, at, at Australia Post as we as Australia Post continues to do. I learned a lot about supply chain and logistics in that role, which I didn't expect. And that led me to my current role at West Farmers, where it really is about taking all of those disciplines that I've learned about new and exciting and digital disruptions and saying, how do you take an iconic Australian company like West Farmers and build out a digital ecosystem with these amazing brands that West Farmers has? And the core of that, of course, is the OnePass program, which is a subscription program that we launched in May last year, catch.com.au, which is a, a marketplace that we acquired just over three years ago, and One Data, which is our data asset. So I've got the great privilege of working in a startup which is owned by West Farmers and dealing with these iconic Australian brands every day. So all of these experiences actually have connected together. And of course, my passion and my other passion is being president of the ARA. So I get to bring all of those thoughts and, and share them with my retailing colleagues. Oh, fantastic. No, it sounds like your career, Nicole, you've always kept moving. You've never stopped still. Is that the way you see yourself? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I actually she had this incredible mentor in my early days at Telstra. Her name is Judy Sladier, and I think she's she's now on boards, but she was fantastic. She was a CEO of the Worldwide Fund globally. She went on to, you know, CEO of Lonely Planet and sold that to the BBC. Very incredible woman. And I remember her once saying to me, and back then I was Nikki, so I was very young, and she'd say, Nikki, unless, you know, you always make sure you have one nostril above water. When you've got one nostril above water, you can still breathe, but, you you, you know, you, you, you're treading water really fast, so you're really challenging yourself. The minute you've got your head above water and you're breathing comfortably, then you've got to move on. Yeah. Because actually that, that sense of, oh, my gosh, this is scary and big is actually exciting and I always I sort of feel that way with my jobs that I think it's important to keep moving and keep challenging yourself I mean you don't want to drown so you know maybe two nostrils above water is a good, <laughs> good idea but um but yeah for me it's always about taking the next opportunity did you always consider yourself a leader or was it something you embraced over time look I never thought about it but you know I grew up in an immigrant family, Paul, as you know. And so when you have parents where English isn't their first language and they certainly reading and writing is not something they're comfortable with and you're the eldest child in that family, basically from the age of, you know, basically from the age of nine, my parents used to, you know, get me to call up you know, telecom at the time and say, that bill is wrong. You tell them, I'm not paying that bill. And so, you know, what was this nine-year-old going, uh, oh, hello, Telstra, you know. And so I think I, I, I learned to have a voice at a young age. Yes. I felt comfortable kind of leaning into situations that are awkward. And so... And then I've had great mentors and sponsors, and I, I do believe there's a difference and you need those in your life. And so I've seen great leadership, and then I've tried, how do I be the best leader I can be? And I think, you know, it's leadership is not something, even the best leaders keep working at it. You've got yes. to keep investing in yourself, giving yourself the right 
opportunities when you do things wrong and you'll do plenty of things wrong how can I learn from that you know you know stepping up to those moments where you go okay I need to to apologize and think through how do I stand in that person's shoes um but for me you know my style of leadership you know I am I am passion I'm I'm you know I, I go fast I you know but you know which is great for many people and for some people it's overwhelming and confusing and feels like a freight train. So I have to, I've learned to measure myself depending in what environment I'm in. And that's really important as you mature as a leader to understand how different people see you and experience you and how you can bring the best out of them. Because that's really what leadership is. It's not about you, it's about them. Now, you talked about your mentor a little bit. Um, Can we unpack that a little bit? Did you find that you've had inspiration throughout your career? Has the mentors come and gone through your career? Or has it just been the one individual through your entire career? No, I've had many mentors. Um, they and they depending on the challenge. The difference between a mentor and sponsor is a sponsor, in, you know, sponsors you into your next role, and it's a very sort of kind of business relationship, if you like. How do I get the next promotion? What do I do in this situation? Very important. You know, can you be my referee? A mentor actually understands you as a person mm-hmm. like and they understand you as your strengths and weaknesses and in many instances depending where you are in your life like another mentor of mine is Jackie Cook who's at Salesforce and she was my boss oh, well 20 years ago because yeah. 21 years ago because Zach's 21 she was the first woman that I'd ever seen that had was a CEO but also had children right and was doing the balance and she was the first time where I went oh you can you can do it all. Yes. And and she I remember her sitting down with me and saying, because I was at the time, we'd been married a while, and I was sort of, you know, that 30, should I, shouldn't I age group. And she said to me, oh, you can't do it all, right, but you can have it all. And the reason you can have it all is you've got to work on what you can do and how you, you know, share the load with your partner. It takes a village to raise a child, yes. but you need to you know, st- stay in your career. And for me, this was fulfilling and I was a better mother. And I, I remember that conversation like it was yesterday because I've shared that with many other women that have come and yeah. seen me who have been in the same situation and go, I'm thinking about having a family, but I love my job so much. How do I, how do you do both? And, you know, you can do both, but you do both differently. And I, I believe to this day that I'm a mother much better leader and executive now and I wouldn't have the role I am now if I didn't have children because having children meant something I used to be the person that always was the first car in the car park in the morning and the last car in the evening and I had to be in every meeting across absolutely everything and once you have a family, you can't because you've got to pick the child yes. childcare closes at six and you can't be in the thing. So what do you learn to do? You learn to delegate and trust and you learn to be a better communicator. So by that, I became a better leader. And I actually, you know, learned so much about myself. But I worried, like, actually, in hindsight, had I not had that family, I reckon yeah. I would have just driven myself nuts and everyone around me nuts because you do need to understand where your boundaries are and how you learn over time to delegate and grow yeah and, and not everyone will do things the way you want to do things but that's okay too so yeah that I'll, and i've had many other mentors but if, i'll probably spend 10 minutes talking about it to <laughs> them but yeah it's helpful because i think partly i think some of the things you're talking about there i think having a family actually gives you other things to think about so you're not just so singular focus and it'll, it forces you to become a better leader because you have to delegate to be successful right that's the whole thing and depend on others yes that's and, right. and i think the other uh, interesting point you raise is the fact that the importance of um having visible role models so you can't 
as they say, you can't be what you can't see. So you've yeah. you've looked up, you've seen a CEO, a female CEO. You think, well, if she can do it, I can do it. So some really good takeouts there for those listening today. Now you've yourself have been a trailblazer for women in, in senior executive roles. What do you think are the challenges as a society for us to further close the gap in gender inequality? Yeah, look, we we've actually made some really interesting progress. Like I was just so delighted to read that Leah Weckett is the CEO of Coles or the incoming yeah. CEO of Coles. You know, the first time that we've had a female CEO of a major supermarket in this country. Um, and last year, of course, Vicky Brady is the CEO of Telstra. Um, so we are slowly seeing that, but it's taken years. And I think fundamentally there's lots of reasons why. Um, you know, I mean, we, we talk about unconscious bias a lot, and I think that was around a long time. I think now we're very aware of that and we, we actually have to stop and think and plan. And certainly at West Farmers, we're really conscious of our gender splits and we're very committed to ensuring that, um, you know, that we have equal representation when, when there's roles going in interviews and that we consider people of, you know, all, all, all diversity actually is really important to us. I, um, I think the other thing that's really important um, in closing the gender inequality uh, or the gender equality gap is actually childcare. What we need to do is fix it because the, the number one reason that people leave the workforce, like I find this stat incredible, 60% of graduates from our universities and, and actually the top graduates are female, yet by the age of 30, only 40% of people in a managerial position are female. So, and by the time we get to 35, it's 30%. So what they're the child rearing at years, and so and and that is actually the situation is. I remember when I had my third child, my husband, who is an amazing partner and has been there every step of the way in my career, and we've always shared the load, sat down and said, "You realise now by putting a third child in childcare with your salary." We're actually going backwards oh, because it's cheaper for you to just work three days a week because I was doing three days a week. By going back full time with three, it actually, and it was at, at that time I said, I know, but I need to do this. And luckily he was raised by a single mum and said, no, no, you need to do this, but you can get a promotion in the next year because we really need <laughs> you. And, you know, but I think that, you know, the reality is even today we've seen improvements, but the cost of childcare, I mean, the last time I was talking to someone that said to me, you know, in CBDs it's, it's you know it's over a hundred dollars a day, mm. and if you've got multiple children, you know you think about it. What the average, you know, there's only kind of I think there's something like two percent of um, women earn over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Yes. So after tax, you know, that's not a lot of take home when you've got mortgages and things. So it's those key things. So for me, the childcare situation is improving, but until it truly improves and we have a reason to get back into, get people back into the workplace quickly and full time, um, you know, where a lot of those roles are, the better. Now, the other thing I'll say, we have made a massive, uh, uh, we've seen massive inroads and that's, I think COVID has helped enormously, has been about flexible working. And I think flexible working also means that we can think differently about how we actually have women re-enter the workforce. And I, I think, you know, I worked part-time for five years of my career and I was very lucky because I had an unusual role where digital wasn't really understood and I was in a particular area of publishing that was unique. So my boss at the time, very forward-thinking, said I'd rather have three days a week of Nicole 
than five days of someone else. And this was before we had phones, et cetera. So it wasn't like I could check in on my days off. Now, I was very lucky, but most of my peers that were working three days were given project work. And they were given project work because they weren't leading a team. They, They could do that on their own when it suited them, Mm. which makes sense. But actually what that means is you're no longer leading. And actually to get the next promotion, you've actually not just got to own a project. You've got to actually understand P&Ls, lead people. Like it's that sort of stuff that I think we are understanding now you can do flexibly. So it's better, but, you know, we've got to keep working at it, Paul. And, And the ARA does an amazing job. I think it's Diversity Council really stands up yes. for what we need. At the end of the day, we need government to support it and we need um, corporates and all all um, people in Australia in businesses to also support and encourage and, and really fight for the change. You've raised some really wonderful points there that so much has, has been achieved, but yet there's such a long way to go still. So those listening that are interested in gender equality, we do have lots of resources and lots of information on our website on www.retail.org.au under gender equality. Now, we're going to move to data and all things digital. How important is it, do you believe, for all retailers to embrace analytics and emerging technologies? I think it's one of our biggest um, opportunities. We saw during COVID but if that you didn't have a digital footprint, you were going to not just close your doors, you were going to, your customers couldn't connect with you. I mean, you and I just spent mm. two weeks at NRF in January, which is the National Retail Federation, the big show. And I think every single Everyone was talking about data and digital. Now, I think for data, it's actually we're drowning in data as a world. Yes. But um, how you use data, how you you use data to improve your customer experience, because the customer doesn't say website, phone, shop. The customer says omni-channel brand that I want to have an experience in, a consistent experience in whatever channel. You know, I might start my searching on the bus on what I'm looking for at my Kmart website, see that, but actually go into the Kmart at Burke Street to actually do the purchase. Yes. But do we realise that it's the same customer? We're starting to get a view of that customer from, you know, where she begins, starts a journey and ends a journey. But the more you understand that, the more you can actually be part of the rhythm of their life. You know, we talk yes. about rhythm. You know, to me, that that customer experience is critical and seamless. And I think that you can, you know, digital really supports you, but it also supports you in streamlining your business operations. Data and digital actually helps you be more efficient. And especially now that we're going in a, in a period that is going to be a bit harder, we're seeing major inflationary pressures. Actually, efficiency is really important so that you can invest back into customer experiences. Yes. So that customers shop more with you. And yes, there's lots of changes in the Privacy Act. So you have to do, you have to collect data really responsibly mm. and you have to be really smart on how you use it. That data should improve the customer experience, not take away. And all of that, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to continually do to invest in that. But if you do that well, then you actually will be able to really grow your business and actually make your business more efficient. And and if I go back to the NRF, one of the things that you and I witnessed firsthand was, you know, Starbucks and how you could download, yes. download the app and actually as you're in store, you know, it would actually tell you what, what was where in that store so you could choose your various coffee, you know, cocktails and do all sorts of things. Like the phone was a really big piece of that customer experience. It certainly was. I mean, you could even see the coffee beans being roasted from that app, which yes, was if right. you pointed your exactly. phone to the roaster in, in, in store. So it was actually quite phenomenal. 
Yeah. And there are so many wonderful stories for that. So I think it's just how you think through your business and your customer Mm. and understand that it ultimately, you know, I'd like to see a world where we're not talking about digital, like we're just talking about customer experience because when you talk digital, people think it's a different channel and actually, and it's a more expensive channel and all of these other dramas. Well, actually, the fact of the matter is it's just where your customers are that you need to be. Yes. And, you know, customer expectations are that you, they need to contact you 24-7. So how do you do that to ensure that whether it's a chat bot or you do it in a way that's cost effective but actually really puts the customer at the centre of, of your experience with them? Nicole, do you think that a digital transformation is a journey or is it a destination? Oh, it's a journey, 100%. If you take that thinking as a journey, then how do you in your role assess what's hype versus what's critical? So it's a really great question, Paul. I mean, I think the reality is you should always focus on the critical pieces, Mm. those things that are going to make your customer. Look, I, I like to focus on retention. So if you take the News Corp experience, when we were building out our News Corp ecosystem, and this was over a decade, we knew that from a subscription point of view, if someone read even if someone read three free articles on news.com.au, if they then clicked on a paid article in Herald Sun and they found two more articles, they would likely subscribe. But if they did not read another article for another month, they would unsubscribe. Yeah. So we worked really hard at finding tri- you know, ways to nudge them to read another article because we knew the magic number was seven. So if someone read seven articles in that period of time, they would renew that subscription because they were getting value out of it. Yes. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. The most important thing is not the hype. The most important thing is what is actually improving my customer stickiness. In retail speak, frequency of shop. Yes. And that frequency of shop, you know, of course we focus on basket size, but really frequency of shop means retention. And the more you retain them, the more you're part of the rhythm of their life. And what we know is that customers want to save money, they want to save time, they want the broadest assortment. You can't do all of those things, but Mm. if you can actually help save money and particularly at the moment and save time because you're quick and efficient and give them the assortment that they need, whether that's in-store or online, you know, gives them an endless aisle, for example, then I think you're really, really focusing on the things that matter. Now, hype's important because we saw social commerce grow significantly over the last few years, and particularly for certain demographics. And that's the next thing. Who is your audience? Who is your customer group? And how am I actually communicating, connecting with them? And sometimes they're not shopping on that platform, but that's their discovery. And so where you are on that journey, you constantly need to be looking at and thinking through and investing in. When you think about digital and data, do the old-fashioned calculations on ROI work or does it need to be much broader in the thinking as the way you've just described it? Well, that's a great question. So when they're on your app or on your website or your mobile experience or social environment, they're connecting with you. And if you can get them to join a program or do a transaction and basically give you consent, yes, you're going to grow a much larger pool of customers that you can actually market and communicate to and give products to than actually if you went and, you know, traditional media went mm. and bought those audiences. 
taxes because you then don't have consent. And with the privacy law changes, I think that's something to, that's a real watch out for retailers. Yes. Actually, what was nice to have and, re- you know, reduce your cost of your marketing because you already had so many audiences that you could, you know, get excited or they'd research. Now, actually, I think it's just going to be part of how we do it because yes. how we actually understand our customers and how we ensure that they're getting an equal value exchange out of sharing their data with us. And so I think that's really important uh, that a lot of people oversight, like they look at the KPIs purely in terms of return on investment and actually the the big opportunity I think for data is 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 really in that consent framework, being yes. able to market to those customers and and communicate with those customers, and actually and the third pillar to that is also about as I said early in the in the podcast that operational efficiency because the more you know them the more that you can actually do that one to one and direct versus these mass marketing channels yes. you know television etc cetera, etc cetera. do you think um, we're digressing slightly but I'm really enjoying this conversation do you think there's still a role to play we've talked about digital but is there a role to play for print for retailers given your history in in media yeah absolutely I mean I think that when you look at I mean look at the end of the day so many of the magazines I mean I, I was at News Corp at the time when we launched medium rare content agency and you know you look at the Qantas magazine you look at Jones at David Jones you look at Bunnings you look at you know the, the magazines are you know particularly effective I think that, you know look at Chemist Warehouse I mean you know they're you know, they've built a whole franchise out of their um their their magazine. I'm trying to the name escapes me now, I should remember. Um from that perspective, how you use it and how you actually use it to communicate, I think, is very different now. And actually many retailers are using it as part of their own ecosystem so you know that custom piece is very different and also what exists in magazine for example or in print actually has to live a life in social and online as well so you don't create the content it's like create content once publish many and publishing many isn't just in the linear thinking about the keywords how you're tagging that content how journalists are writing that content is important i think for me the other thing that's really interesting and i know that other people disagree with me but I, i do actually think you see catalogs are still going strong and the reality is those catalogs that are going strong really create content that people want to consume I think Aldi Best Buys for example or and so feeling that destination and that tangibility is important now the long-term I think is all, is going to be online and digital because we're more and more on our phones but there's still particular demographics that really you know find mm that connection through the printed publication, really important. Now, we're planning for a tougher year this year. I think when you think about this year and trading out of the last couple of years coming out of COVID, retailers did particularly well. What are the predictions or advice you can give for what will be a challenging year? I think it will be a challenging year. I think in challenging years, um, I was actually talking to someone yesterday, an American coach who's coming out this week, who's fantastic, a guy by the name of Stephen Miles. He runs the Miles Group. Recommend his podcast if anyone's listening to this. And he's saying that in the US, uh, he coaches a lot of uh, CEOs. Everyone has turned from actually measuring organisations or businesses on potential to now just measuring on performance. And so where you used to be able to say my share price, as long as I've got a vision, I mean, I've got a level of performance, but the potential of this new category, this new addressable market, this new technology is so great. Whereas now you are just measured on that performance and with unknown performance, because we see household spending fluctuating, we see interest rates rising and inflationary pressure. 
then I think what we need to really do is go back to how do we maximise the assets we have, how do we be as efficient as possible, and how do we make sure that we get that cut through with that customer. And that really is still about omnichannel because we're seeing more and more customers, yes, they're back in stores, but basket sizes aren't as healthy as they once were. There's less in the basket. So how do we make sure that they're shopping in our stores and they're actually know what they can be buying. And really, it just comes down to seeking out great value. We're kind of lucky because, you know, at West Farmers, we have Bunnings and Officeworks and um, Kmart that are all EDLP, everyday low price retailers. But, you know, for a lot of others, it is really about thinking through how do I drive as much value for that customer because for them saving money is really important mm. and there are certain you know um there are certain groups that we're really seeing that um that you know certain groups that are starting to trade down so that they used to you know spend in kind of the luxury market and now are rethinking where they're spending their money and there are certain households in australia that are doing it really tough so they'll be thinking through every dollar they spend so as retailers we just have to make sure that we're in front of them and that we're showing that value and then keep things as lean as possible in the back end as as you can but you know easy to say those things it's never as easy to do but we just have to stay focused absolutely and look that's a really lovely way to end this podcast thanks for joining us nicole in the american express lounge for some retail therapy congratulations all the work you're doing at west farmers and here at the ara and all the best for the future well thank you um paul i'm a big fan of you and the ara you do fantastic things i look forward to the events and the perspectives and and all the industry coming together so it's been great a lovely thing to say and it goes both ways nicole Lovely to work with you as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Therapy, brought to you by our season partner, American Express. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give the show a follow on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of episodes on our website. We've covered leadership, small business and sustainability. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, wherever you love to connect. All the links can be found in the show notes. Founded by Umberto Somma in 1962, Paisanella is an Italian food emporium and cheese manufacturer based in the Marrickville suburb of Sydney, now run by Umberto's two sons, Max and Joe. Today I'm speaking with Joe Somma. Joe, welcome to the Retail Therapy Podcast here in the American Express Lounge. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me today. Your father, Umberto Somma, founded Paisanella as an Italian cheese manufacturer in 1962. What has the business growth story looked like since then? Uh, yeah, so long story short, Dad started the business back in 1962, arrived in Australia as an immigrant on his own um, with a few shillings in his pocket and, um, you know, basically worked a few jobs and thought, you know what, there's no real good cheese around this place and um, thought... I'm going to start making cheese, which he did. And he started making uh, his fresh cheeses on the side of the um, Hawkesbury River out of um, out of Windsor and, um, you know, making the cheese for the local Italian community and um, set up his little factory in Marrickville. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're still working out of that uh, premises today, uh, manufacturing the actual cheese. Uh, but we have relocated the retail store down in Marrickville Road um, with our cafe as well, so it makes it easier for clients and customers to come and visit. That's a fascinating story, Joe. Now, Paisanella is now an inner city or inner West Sydney institution. People come from miles around to sample your wares with your famous hot ricotta, sounds delicious, being a particular crowd pleaser. How do you keep your customers coming back again and again? 
Um, Paul, yeah, good question. But it, essentially, it's our it's our quality product. Um, I have customers that I see today that are the sons and daughters of the fathers that used to come, you know, when dad was around, and uh, who are still coming today to buy the cheese. So. Um, you know, my brother, who's also in the um, manufacturing, he does a production. He's always making sure that the product is cons- consistently consistent and of high quality, and hence why we always have those customers coming back. Now, you've been involved in American Express Shop Small for some time, and in 2022, you were invited to the Shop Small Parliamentary Showcase, where you travelled to Canberra to meet with the nation's leaders to rally further support for the movement. Now, what benefits did this bring for Paisanella? Oh, look, that was a fantastic experience to meet some of the leaders involved in um, small business and being able to um, just explain to them some of the uh, impacts of high um, price rises or you know costs of living can affect the business. And um, but in terms of saying that, you know, we're still persevering and, and and still being able to run even through you know periods like COVID. We we've you know been sort of you know very fortunate that we can still go through that period and still you know run a family business well thank you joe for joining me here on the retail therapy podcast here in the american express lounge all the best for the future thank you so much for for having me